One of the best ways to support the FTF podcast is to check out our Patreon over at patreon.com slash finish the fight for exclusive episodes, insights, interviews, and plenty more. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. Where we develop and produce the highest quality gaming research in podcast form. I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And today, we are diving into, I just want to say, starting out, a phenomenal game. Mm-hmm. A, a, a game changer, one might say. It really is. I mean, we're, we're talking about a Sony title that has led its way uh, in story narrative and gameplay and really, you know, pulling on the heartstrings of a lot of people that lead to its sequel that we just re- we just saw uh, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Yep, we are going to be covering The Last of Us. Now, the girl, is she alive? And I, I said, I gotta say, before we even start, I'm gonna get a little emotional talking about the campaign of this game. Jesse may cry. I might. D- playing hashtag, the game. Hashtag Jesse cry time. <laughs> playing the game, I cried multiple times. It's... As you said, it tugs on your heartstrings, the narrative itself, the pacing, everything, it's it's you know, it's up there as being one of the better games that have came out that have come out, you know, this past decade well, for it, sure. It was. And you know, they even talk about uh they, they really wanted to focus on narrative. Mm-hmm. That that was kind of their core staple they were gonna set with and everything was gonna be built around that. And whether whether you like The Last of Us or not, you have to admit like that that they did achieve Mm-hmm. that portion of it. Yeah, absolutely. But I'd say let's dive into you know what this game is exactly. Mm-hmm. So The Last of Us is a third-person survival action game developed by Naughty Dog Studios and published by Sony, released June 14th, 2013 on the PlayStation 3. In the post-apocalyptic world of The Last of Us, Joel and Ellie have few friends and a seemingly infinite amount of enemies. Throughout the game, they find themselves either fighting those who look to take everything they have or the infected, a fungi-infested you know, race of zombies. As a player, you must utilize the world around you, picking up what you can to forge weapons, heal yourself, and navigate what's left of society. Because that's a big thing is Joel and Ellie working with each other, mm-hmm. even just to, to get across like a river or something. Yeah. The world of The Last of Us isn't your typical post-apocalyptic world, though. Even though the cities are decaying and decrepit, nature has taken hold, giving us a setting that is vibrant and vast You know, within this humanized wasteland. Mm -hmm. You know, the earth is claiming back what we have taken. Mm -hmm. The Last of Us can be a fast-paced and chaotic game at times, but there are also plenty of moments where Joel and Ellie 
can take in the beauty of the world around them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, it's it's not like kind of like a Mad Max Fallout uh, post-apocalyptic world. It's it's beautiful. It's mm-hmm. typically, you know, there's fauna and, and just nature everywhere. You're seeing just animals as you're walking around, even, you know, the famous giraffe scene from mm-hmm. the game. The core of this game is the connection between the main characters, Joel and Ellie. As the game progresses, the teamwork between the two strengthens. Starting from the pair just helping with navigation, like Jesse said, either getting across a bridge, making their way through buildings, mm-hmm. till eventually, you know, this bond strengthens enough where Joel brings on Ellie into combat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even a situation like as you're hiding, she'll throw a brick at their head, or mm-hmm. like if someone is grabbing you from behind, she comes out of nowhere and just like stabs them in the neck or something. Like, Super brutal for a 13 or 14-year-old child at the time, but it's, as I said, you don't get that immediately. You have to start building your relationship with her, and it needs to strengthen. And and for most of the game, you know, you're playing as Joel, who who we learn is this kind of just downtrodden soul, doesn't trust anyone, doesn't really Mm -hmm. care about anyone. I mean, we see it at the beginning, you know, he was a con man, and has kind of found his way here. Mm Mm-hmm. And in one of the first scenes, you know, him and Ellie take this truck, and there's, there's a man who appears to be hurt. And Ellie's like, we should stop and help him. And Joel's like, no, like I like, kind of like like I know that scheme. He he says, put on your seatbelt and just floors it. Yeah. at the guy. And because because you know whether it's interpreted or not, like how you want to interpret the story of basically like kind of like oh I've done that scheme. I know he, yeah I know what he's doing. Because she said, how did you know what to how that that guy was faking? And he says, I've been on both sides. Mm-hmm. Take that as you want. Like very straightforward. But there's a lot of those small conversations. In gameplay, yes, where and there's so many little details that they sprinkle in where uh, Ellie's just being a kid at times and making jokes, and Joel just you know he's he's this this old soul that really, as I said, he didn't really let anyone in for the most part. So him trying to open up, and we'll dive more about that in 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 the campaign portion mm-hmm. of this, but it's just it's too good seeing all of all of these interactions in that. Uh, unity between the two. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and that's exactly it. And so let's talk about Naughty Dog, who they are, where they came from, um, who's been able to establish this lore for us. Yeah, yeah. So Naughty Dog Studios was co-founded by Andy Gavin and Jason Rubin, who met at the age of 12. Sharing their love of video games, they quickly became friends and would frequently swap pirated games with one another. By the time they were 13, they started creating their own video games on the Apple II. By 15, they had sold their first game, Ski Crazed, and formed Jam Software. After the successful publication of the game Keith the Thief by EA, which I love that name. Hey, good old Keith the Thief. (laughs) Which was released in 1989, the duo renamed the studio to Naughty Dog and was signed to Universal Interactive Studios for three additional games. During the production of their three-dimensional action platformer game, the company began to grow, developing Crash Bandicoot. The end goal was to make that character the mascot for the PlayStation 1. And after 14 months of development, Naughty Dog successfully gained the attention of Sony Computer Entertainment, and Crash Bandicoot was published. After being shown for the first time at E3, the game would go on to sell 6.8 million copies. Several Bandicoot games later, Sony would buy out the company as a whole. This would result in the co-founders of the company leaving it behind to pursue other ventures. In 2007, Naughty Dog started work on the Uncharted series, which has gone on to sell almost 17 million copies worldwide as of April 2012. But this is where we're seeing the success of Uncharted, so now they're kind of starting to look at, well, what else can we do within this vein, essentially? Well, Uh, and and to continue the linear lines of story-elemented games. mm -hmm, And single-player. You know, the, the start of Naughty Dog within the Crash Bandicoot series 
series was insane because you know they they basically fumbled their way through it at the start and mm-hmm. had to hack their way on to a PlayStation to a lot for the memory to use with Crash Bandicoot. Yeah, because uh, at the time they there was really no dev kits, and Sony's very infamous for never really publishing dev kits, having anything available for people. Yeah, uh, so it's it's a very interesting story behind you know the first Crash and what led on to that, and wanting to really. Create a 3D platformer that wasn't Sonic, wasn't Mario, that gave these crazy 3D elements, but that was still on rails, mm-hmm. that still kept you on this linear path of you know either up, down, left, right, and kept you within those elements. Mm-hmm. And without that, we wouldn't have had Naughty Dog continue on to produce such quality, like you said, as Uncharted, as The Last of Us, you yes. know, and as plenty of games they have coming out even this year alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now that we understand the studio a little bit more, let's talk about developing the game itself. And lead game designer Jacob Minkoff had this to say, new IPs are really hard. They're hard because you don't know what's fun yet. You're building new tech, new AIs, establishing new characters, new art, you know, all of this. You don't get to that controller in your hands for six months to a year. And Uncharted 2 had just wrapped up development in 2009, and Naughty Dog decided that it was time to create a second internal development team. The first time they tried this during the development of Uncharted Drake's Fortune, it overall failed. But Naughty Dog had grown since then. It was time to try it once more. Now, the question was, what game will the new team create? One of the original ideas was to reboot the Jack and Daxter series with creative director Neil Druckmann and game director Bruce Straley heading the project. Concept artists had free reign to tackle the reboot however they saw fit. And it made sense because we had Jack and Daxter early on three games, I think. Two or three, yeah. Trilogy of them. And like early, mid-2000s. And they did well on on the PlayStation series. Mm -hmm. It was kind of one of those like middle mascots, I guess you would say. Mm -hmm. And I think for for Sony and platformer-wise, kind of Crash ruled that everything else kind of followed suit and did okay. Yeah, you had that uh, uh, Ratchet and Clank as well. Yep. Uh, th- this kind of, it was like the next gen of those platformers, essentially. Yes. And, and really, the, the late 2000s into the 2010s was kind of a weird death to the platformer. Mm-hmm. Platformers were seeing a huge decline. People were switching over to a lot more shooters, per- first persons, interactives yes. that, were, that were really in the heyday of it. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of fell to the wayside. Now... Mm-hmm. In today's modern terms, we're seeing a resurgence of that. We're seeing Absolutely. Ratchet and Clank come back. You know, we're, we're seeing Mario in its heyday. I've put too many hours into Sackboy. Yes. Way too many hours. New Sackboy. So a lot of new uh, reuse, I would say. Mm-hmm. New and reused IPs that are coming back, either getting a new polish on them or new game. So, so yeah, un- unfortunately for them, died back then. So Sony and Naughty Dog had to make that pivot mm-hmm. and had to figure out what else could they do. And though they had some new ideas for a series to build, they felt that they would have been too far of a departure from those original Jack and Daxter games. Mm -hmm. Naughty Dog co-president Evan Wells decided to scrap the project entirely and that the new team would develop, uh, you know, what they were afraid of, a new IP altogether. So this is where they had to start from scratch. The team started brainstorming ideas for the first-person game, or a game that was similar to Left 4 Dead, but would be multiplayer only with a limited story. Eventually, they went a different direction with their ideas. Druckmann and Straley wanted to create an M-rated game set in a post-apocalyptic world, a story that tells the grounded adventure of two people and their growing relationship throughout the game, inspired by Eco, 
They got this idea from a cut mission in Uncharted 2. Nathan Drake would have to traverse an area with a mute girl. They'd have to figure out how to communicate without actually talking. Everything in The Last of Us grew from that cut concept. And that really helps when you have those internal studios that can build off this. Yeah. And, like, and, and again, like Naughty Dog, well, hands down, again, regardless of what you think of their IPs they've created, will go down in history as one of the greatest studios to produce content. Mm-hmm. Through and through. And they have been able to put all this together. And it's so cool to see, you know, the Last of Us team talking with the Uncharted team being like, actually, that's a really cool thing. If you're not going to use that, can we just make a whole game based off of that? <laughs> Probably they're like, well, we want to use it. Nope. It's ours now. Nope. You can just do a, a Last of Us DLC for Uncharted. <laughs> Best of luck. <laughs> they came up with the two main characters, Joel and Ellie. From the beginning, they didn't want Joel to be Ellie's father, since it would be obvious he'd be willing to do anything for her. Mm -hmm. If, however, Joel and Ellie were strangers at the beginning of the game, you as the player by default would see her as a stranger as well, and won't really have any connection with her. You'll have to build that connection. They were making a character-driven game based off of lessons learned from the Uncharted series, and on the surface, the game is about Joel and Ellie, but digging deeper, the developers wanted the game to truly be about Ellie, which they accomplished. And they did well. I mean, it makes sense to not have them relate. Mm -hmm. When you see that in games, you just you, you already know, yes, if, if something's going after Ellie, Joel will sacrifice his life for it because mm -hmm. uh, that's her dad yeah. or uncle or whatever, whatever you want to say it, it's related to. But having complete strangers start to form this bond from one that's basically a husk of a man mm -hmm. and one that is just kind of this innocence trapped within this. It's yeah. really cool to see that that intertwine and intermingle and yeah. actually have a story arc in a game. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that really tested that relationship was these zombies that they refer to as uh, infected or clickers in the game. Mm -hmm. And with the grounded story, they, they want it to be realistic like a, a realistic post-apocalyptic era. Mm -hmm. They didn't want something that was just pure fantasy. They wanted something that was somewhat grounded in reality. Mm -hmm. You know, something about the world falling apart after a deadly disease, but the story would be more focused on how humanity is moving on and overcoming it. Mm -hmm. So so the disease had already hit. It's, it's the settling. It's kind of the settling of the dust is where we yeah, are now. Yeah, tw 20 years, to be precise, post, you know, when this infection first started. Mm -hmm. The infected people in the world, though, still needed to be a part of the story. Since removing them from the game, it would impact the gameplay immensely. Yeah, so at one point, it, there wasn't even going to be any zombies. But they're like, we kind of need that as one driving force, mm -hmm. even if it's minor. Because then you just are kind of the walking dead as well. Yeah. And you're just, you, and I get it, it's still based on, you still want it to be based on both the zombie aspect of it and the human part of it, you mm -hmm. know, having to deal with both kind of tribes. But no, it made sense to put it in there to cause, to well, first of all, to build the gameplay yes. and make something interesting, but to keep that narrative going of what that story behind it was. Yeah. Seeds of the zombie story actually go all the way back to 2004, when Druckmann was attending Carnegie Mellon University, working towards his master's degree in entertainment technology. That sounds like an amazing degree. <laughs> it actually does. <laughs> in one of his classes, he had to create a game pitch. He came up with the idea of Eco meets Zombies in Sin City. Who else would pick the winner for all these pitches? None other than director George Romero, who wrote and directed Night of the Living Dead, and a friend of the professor teaching the class. Romero actually picked a different student's pitch, but years later, the idea was revived for The Last of Us. Now, we have to go back in time. I'm going to go find Romero. <laughs> Remember? 
Remember when you're in Carnegie Hall? Not Carnegie Hall, but Carnegie the College. <laughs> and you picked that pitch? You picked the wrong one, my friend. You picked the wrong one, which, I mean, hell, uh, who knows how this game would have been in 2004 or, you know, a few years later. I think the timing was right. I went on the N64. I want Super Smash Bros. <laughs> graphics for it. A, a demake of yeah. The Last of Us. You've seen a lot of those, like, PS4 games being demade to uh, PS1 games. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine that? And I want this to have, like, Resident Evil 1, con- like, camera controls. <laughs> every every new uh, area is just, like, a different uh, camera Static corner. Camera. That's yep. what we need. But, yeah, to, to wrap it up, Druckmann even tried to use this idea for a comic book, and he started writing it. He, he had a good 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 run with it. But he couldn't get a publisher to pick it up. They're like, uh, have you read The Walking Dead? Because this is The Walking Dead. Yeah. And so, so yeah, unfortunately, with his idea of this kind of eco meets zombies meets Sin City, it, it just it wasn't an idea that I think a lot of people meshed with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Inspiration for the zombie-like characters in the game came from the BBC show Planet Earth. In one episode, it talks about a cordyceps fungus, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis, that infects the brain of ants. The fungus uses the ants to spread the infection to other ants. This fungus can wipe out entire colony of ants. Australian Druckmann came up with the idea of a similar fungus spreading to humans when they were in the middle of developing Uncharted 2. They jokingly thought, quote, why hasn't someone used this as zombie lore yet? What if we made a game that had that same idea? Mm-hmm. Which I think it's one of the more original ideas for a zombie breakout. It's not just there is a random patient zero. Now we're just biting people and they are infected. It's like it's now has this real world tie to it. It's very much the way that I see like 28 days later. Take mm-hmm. their zombies where it's more of this rage virus that was created in a lab. Yeah. And if you get like a drop of blood on you or if you, you do get scratched, any of that stuff, you do do that transformation. Mm-hmm. Not for brains. It's just similar to this wanting to transmute it. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, as you said, this rage because there are zombies that just grab you. And tr- start pulling your face off, uh, and that's like kind of one of your deaths, essentially. Mm-hmm. Which is really interesting. Is I, I read an interview with an expert of that cordyceps fungus, and they asked him. It was after this game had came out, and they're like, "How would you do in a if if this was all real? How would you do in a zombie apocalypse?" And he goes, "I have no idea." Yeah. He goes, I-, "I can't tell you my fight or flight." He's like, "No one can." No. He's like, "You only know when you're in that situation. You can't say that you're a leader or a runner. Like, you won't know." No, all of us, all of us think we're going to be like that sweet, like chainsaw wielding, mm-hmm. basically like Ash and the Evil Dead. Yeah, like that's what we're going to feel like we're all going to be like. But then when it hits, you're like, ooh, I- no, thank you. I've asked my girlfriend this, and she said, "Nope, I'd die in about five minutes." <laughs> She's like, "I'm dead." So she she knows. Early concepts of the infection had them looking as if they were some kind of alien or a subhuman species. Other concepts had them looking like the standard zombie, though. Mm -hmm. Lead character artist Michael Nolan eventually took some photos of real-life fungus and combined it onto photos of humans giving the infected or clickers their iconic look. They're called clickers because the fungus eventually covers their um, their eyes, so they have to use echolocation, essentially, mm-hmm. through clicking. The fungus not only grows on the clickers, but tears through their body as it does so. They created a whole life cycle for clickers' infection, starting with the fungus just under the skin or displaying cloudy eyes. Then it grows from the head and eventually covers the entire body. And when a clicker is near death, they lay down in a corner And from there, the body breaks down and becomes part of the environment, spreading the spores that will infect humans. Again, also giving zombies an expiration date, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like, they don't just wander around forever. The fungus starts to take over, and they become the fungus, which is so, so cool. I think it's great, because in your traditional zombie—or, let's let's go Walking Dead lore. Mm -hmm. You start to decay as the body kind of decays, but— 
you still live on it can it can clam it can clamber and yeah. your your only thought is eating. Mm-hmm. But in this, the fungus knows it's it's very much that flora fauna idea of okay, we've now taken over this host, put the host down, spread the spores, and continue our life cycle. Mm-hmm. So it it seems predatory in a sense, but it seems just more like a, a genuine life cycle that happens within. The, the, the earth that we have. Yeah, it's the fungus thinking about itself. Mm-hmm. And humans are just the vessel to continue living. Exactly. And not only was the studio thinking about the clickers and the humans that were in there, but mm-hmm. they had to build an idea for this 20-plus year apocalyptic world. Yes. What was it going to look like after this, you know, after day one or day zero happened, what's it happening on day, what is that? I'm not going to do the math. Day, day about 8,000 uh-huh. uh, is what we're looking at. The world itself also needed to feel real. Naughty Dog made it a character all on its own. Druckmann had read a book called The World Without Us that describes how much humans have to push back the earth on a day-to-day basis. In a world where humans haven't done this for 20 years, nature quickly starts to take it back. Even animals from zoos have started to repopulate and spread throughout major cities. The studio also had three copies of photographer Robert Polidori's Zones of Exclusions. This book showed the aftermath of the Chernobyl catastrophe in Chernobyl and Pripyat and how the abandoned spaces looked over time. To capture the overall feel the cities visited in the game, the studio heavily relied on Google Maps, but did have some developers visit the cities like Boston. Overall, they weren't trying to replicate the cities, but capture what made them unique. Mm-hmm. And one thing I will say that's, that's pretty neat that they did do is they captured, was it Comic-Con up there? I forget what was going on, but in, in one of the areas where they typically hold the cons, mm-hmm. they did, like, a fallen one. Oh, okay. Uh, which is kind of cool. It's like a little Easter egg towards it, because it seems like some side-by-sides. People post the pictures mm-hmm. of that year when it happened. Dude, there's so many Easter eggs in that game. It's not even funny. It, it's it's amazing. And, and lead designer Jacob Minkoff bought a book on survival to kind of keep that idea going of, of really how would this come about? How are you going to mm-hmm. build this world? What are they going to do? Mm-hmm. This would help designers dial in the survival aspects of the game. Answering the question of, quote, what does one need to gather in order to survive? Well, I mean, and that's kind of genius because there are only a handful of items that you are gathering. So, like, mm-hmm. what are these – What like, what are the definitive items that you are going to need no matter what that you'll always want to grab if mm-hmm. you have the room for? And, it's, and especially the talk of what survived after 20 years mm-hmm. of no production line, of, mm-hmm. you know, what's on store shelves idea, all those things that have made its way through and, you know – Getting the knowledge as you go through of what can you craft. Exactly, yeah. And, and crafting was is, is super important in the game. But also their, their AI system that they used as well was super important. The studio created a new AI system just for The Last of Us. With this, the AIs were a lot more insightful during fights. If an enemy doesn't have a gun and you do, they run away. If you run out of ammo while shooting your gun, they will start to approach you and even devise a plan to flank you. Like you can hear them communicate, say, he's out of ammo, or you know, go left, go mm-hmm. right. These also transfer to Ellie. She's extremely helpful in the game, helping you during firefights, like flanking the enemy when you need to reload. Naughty Dog essentially looked at the AI from Uncharted and decided not really to use any of the AI systems that could be from that game. They wanted to do this all from scratch. Like, and it makes sense when you're when you're building out, you know, an AI mesh system mm-hmm. of a lot a lot of if this then that's if if gun makes click noise, there's no ammo. Enemy then responds with, okay, approach player. Is that what you put in the code? Gun makes click noise, no ammo, 
Yeah, it's literally most of what you would do. <laughs> it's however you name your codes with that. Yeah, so, so you'd have stuff like that. Or, um, you know, again, if player has gun, then, you know, act, then do retreat. Mm-hmm. So, so it, it had to be built specifically for this to make it more realistic. Because like you said, if you use it off of just like a base AI generator or off Uncharted, it's just what works with that setting. Mm-hmm. And with this, you had to make it very specific for these these small little patch firefights you'd have um, that are very intimate. Yeah, even like a situation where it's, you know, you can hold an enemy hostage mm-hmm. and kind of like no one's going to shoot at you. You're just going to slowly move around until someone might potentially flank you. you know? it, and that's exactly it. And, and, and using that AI, it made so much more sense and made the game... It sucked you into the game and made you feel like you were there a lot more. Mm-hmm. The pressure yeah. was on. In, you know, like in the hostage situation, you're there holding it. You're like, I got to back out. got to get over here. Oh, who's that going right? Mm-hmm. Like, got to yes. watch out for that. And it made it so much more immersive and just just a better game overall. And I really appreciate that they took that attention to detail. Mm-hmm. Let's even dive into more so of the the characters or or kind of the setting that they wanted to do for breaking some some stereotypes in the game. Naughty Dog was out to break, you know, like Jesse said, the stereotypes of women in video games. Players didn't expect Ellie to be the strong, self-sufficient character that she was. Naughty Dog even wanted to keep it a secret that she was a playable character, and even lied in interviews to do so, because we don't see her as an actual playable character until about, what, two-thirds of the game or so? Mm-hmm. Uh, the winner. The winner um, part of the game. So, yeah, like uh, two, the over halfway, two-thirds. Yes, yeah, so something around there. So, yeah, we play as Joel at the beginning, and that's kind of how you feel. Is you'll be him. Ellie's just kind of the sidekick that you start out with mm-hmm. that we slowly see gets better and better, can do more and more, and then eventually we get to take her on as a character. Yes. They also never mentioned that you play as Sarah in the beginning of the game. They wanted it to be a total surprise. And when Naughty Dog found out that the research group they hired to conduct focus tests were only using males, they stepped in and told them to bring in women for the focus tests as well. You know, to, to test the game out. Like, that was actually sitting there, trying the game out, mm-hmm. seeing who was playing it, seeing what the reactions were. And, yeah, they didn't diversify it. They just brought in, like, guys play games, grab them. Yeah, and they even, yeah, as I said, at the very beginning, they said, we want this to be men and women. Mm-hmm. And they're just like... Sure, whatever, and then just brought in men. You're like, no, we're trying. We have an agenda with this game. We want to break stereotypes. Like, bring in women too. We need them to to, or we want to know what they feel about this game. Yeah, and, and this this was something they had actually requested in the beginning. You know, with this this quote from Neil Druckmann, the creative director, saying, "I had this secret agenda. I wanted to create one of the coolest non-sexualized female video game protagonists, and I felt that if we did that, there's an opportunity to change the industry." I know it sounds pretentious, but that was my goal. You know, and this was over from an International Game Developers Association uh, meeting that he had that was talking about, you know, with other game devs saying, listen, mm-hmm. guys, I know we've had this, you know, this kind of boys club forever. It's it's typically been a male-dominated thing. Why don't we create a female character that's not sexualized, mm-hmm. that doesn't just have, like, cloth, loincloth armor, you know, or, yeah, or that's just, as powerful as uh, steel armor. Yeah, you know, we need to create something that that brings people in to want to play this, especially if we're going to want more of an audience to come play our game, to understand the story of it. You know, we want to take that, that machismo that we had with Drake, transfer a little bit over here, mm-hmm. but also give empowerment to everyone within our story. Yeah. And, and I think overall they did an amazing job with it. Mm, yeah, and they did an amazing job, I think, specifically with Joel and Ellie. And, when... and, and that breaks down to not only the character design, 
but who they cast to play the characters. Absolutely, yeah. When searching for the actors for Ellie and Joel, it didn't take long to decide on Ellie's voice actress, Ashley Johnson, who was their third candidate to audition. Right then and there, they knew she was perfect for the role. From there on, they used Johnson to help with auditions for Joel. Eventually, the studio landed on Troy Baker, who is one of the, in my opinion, most legendary uh, video game actors that we've had within the past decade. Mm-hmm. He's he's really helped pioneer pushing acting in this in this medium through and through. At first, the studio was unsure about Baker, describing him as a Final Fantasy character, and he was the youngest person auditioning for the role because he's, I believe, mid late twenties at the time. And if you do look at a photo at the time, he had like, he literally did look like a Final <laughs> Fantasy. Like, that's no joke because I looked it up and I saw some videos. I was like, no, he really had like the spiky hair and then like the emo hair sometime. Like, it was perfect. Where was his Millennium Puzzle? <laughs> um, I think he left it in the car. Oh, with his grandpa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Uh, I mean, he's auditioning. There was, he didn't suspect any, uh, any uh, duels to the Shadow Realm at the time. Understandable. <laughs> Understandable. But as I said, he was also the youngest person auditioning for a 50-year-old rough southern guy. Mm-hmm. And he just has like a regular voice. It's me, Final Fantasy guy. <laughs> that's, that's what he sounded like when he first auditioned. And they're like, no, 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 southern. He's like, oh, okay. And then he did the Joel voice. Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, when he first started reading the lines and acted the scenes out, they were sold. They would also bring in an uncharted voice actor, Nolan North, to portray the character Sully. He would make an effort to disguise his voice so it doesn't sound like Uncharted's Nathan Drake, and it really doesn't. I did not know this until I started researching it, that this, uh, spoiler alert, Cannibal was actually Nolan North. Now, let me let me know in the, in the I'm going to say in the chat, I've been doing Twitch too much now. Let me know in the comments, wherever it is, was this when the beautiful, loving relationship with Troy Baker and Nolan North started? I think so. Like, is this, is this where it truly began? Because I know they've done stuff, like, in the past with Together with Stuff, but I is be- this where it began? I believe Troy Baker had done some Uncharted work, and they had, like, known mm-hmm. each other. Because I think Troy Baker says, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, he, like, when uh, one, the trailer for um, The Last of Us was going to premiere, he was sitting next to Nolan North. And at the time, Nolan wasn't part of the project. So he was, like, quietly, like, waiting for him and then kind of, like, told him afterwards, like, that's me. <laughs> Just like, that's me. Uh, again, two two amazing. I mean, voice t- actors. two icons that have been together. I know that they're doing. I don't know if they're still doing it, but they did like a YouTube kind of podcasty show together, and they, they've been some of the big big proponents pushing, you know, a, a lot of like I said, voice work and bringing mm-hmm. bringing talented acting to the game and established voice acting that should be there, not just as an afterthought, but that could be a driving force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. During motion capture sessions, there were a lot of times that Johnson wanted to change scenes where she felt Ellie wasn't acting how she should. She would think, quote, what would I do in this situation? And typically it was the opposite of what Ellie was supposed to do in the scene. The studio would actually go through and change a lot of the scenes based on, you know, what Ashley thought should be different. Mm-hmm. Ellie became a lot more of an active character in the game because... In that scene we had talked about earlier where the guy says he's injured and and Joel just drives and tries to hit him, when Ellie gets uh, dragged out of that truck, originally she wasn't supposed to fight back. And Johnson's Mm -hmm. like, no, I would fight back. Like, So she's like, we need to have her be more of this character that's going to fight back and push back against this opposition, essentially. Mm -hmm. All the voice acting in the game, it was actually recorded during that motion capture session with lines re-recorded afterwards if need be. Even though all the cutscenes in the game were done through motion capture, all the facial animations were 
actually done by hand. The animators would watch videos from the motion capture sessions and try to replicate the actors' faces best they can, you know, doing that hand point movement for each frame. Mm-hmm. It's a very painstaking, long hours work to do this, but it really pays off in the end. Yeah. When creating the end for the game, the studio kept going back and forth on how exactly the game was going to, you know, reach its culmination. At one point, it was going to be a rather happy ending. Joel and Ellie would settle down in San Francisco and start a new settlement. Boring. There was also another ending where Joel was tied up, being tortured by a knife to the throat. Ellie would have to rescue him. Eventually, the ending was changed to, you know, one with Joel as a savior instead of Ellie. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you have to play the game to figure it out. Uh, but but it, was, it was still <laughs> kind of this, this, this not so happy ending i would say yeah it's it was it was a darker ending Mm -hmm. essentially druckman and straley thought that the pair would get off too easy you know Mm -hmm. just kind of settling down being like oh look we're so happy now all right see you guys later Mm -hmm. you know they thought you know it needed to have some grit with it and and something that really involved you know life or death situation there there needed to be a weight uh on the decisions made exactly this split the studio in half as to which ending should be in the game And focus tests showed that almost everyone hated the not-so-happy one. The developers stuck with it anyways. And the ending of itself was was supposed to be uh, just a long cinematic showing the ending, you know, all right, that was bad, savior, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. But they actually changed it to make sure that you are the one that has to make these decisions. You have to... You actually wear the weight Mm -hmm. and bear the weight instead of having just, you know, like, oh, I'm done with the game, cool, sounds good. You put the controller down and just watch it. Now you have to be a part of this. Mm Mm-hmm. Naughty Dog did get some pushback from Sony when it came to the box art. Joel was actually standing behind Ellie, and Ellie was the larger character on the box. The studio was asked to push her back and make her smaller and make Joel the the bigger character on Mm -hmm. the box. Naughty Dog refused to make this change because at the end of the day, this is Ellie's story. You know, that's really what they wanted to do, and they wanted her to be a powerful character. And Sony was like, that's not going to work. But, I mean, it worked very Mm -hmm. well. After three and a half years, development was complete on May 15th, 2013. Now, originally set to release May 7th, the game was delayed by only five weeks, releasing on June 14th, 2013. No Country for Old Men was an influence for the game, along with the movie Children of Men and the novels The Road and City of Thieves, and most obviously the Walking Dead comic series and 28 Days Later. I'm going to pause you there. City of Thieves, if if you haven't read it yet, one of my favorite books. I haven't. Go read it. <laughs> it's a fantastic book. It's, mm-hmm. it's a fantastic book set during the siege of Leningrad. I highly recommend it. Regarding other influences, Druckmann had this to say in an interview with Fast Company. Quote, We read about the Spanish flu at the turn of the century and how a whole town would barricade themselves in due to fear of getting infected. It's interesting what people are capable of when they face extinction and what people do when they are so desperate. You get to see the best and the worst of men. You really do. I mean, we even saw some of that now in our current situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, not as dire as in 1918 or in the Black Plague, but still had rationings, a couple other things early on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting to see how it goes. But as, we, as we've wrapped up production of the game itself, let's dive into the marketing and how... Uh, Naughty Dog and Sony presented this game to the world. The game would debut at the 2011 Spike Video Game Awards. The original trailer, however, was taken down from YouTube due to a copyright claim from Viacom International Incorporated 
because the trailer was featured at the Spike Video Game Awards, which was part of their conglomerate. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, Sony had to re-upload a video to The Last of Us official website using a different video player. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we did have a lot of trailers, even a TV commercial for it that aired at the uh, season finale of The Walking Dead. So there was still your traditional marketing. But but we did have some different methods of marketing for the game, and one of those was American Dreams. Now, since Druckmann had previously tried his hand in creating comic books, it only makes sense that he would help create one with Canadian cartoonist Faith Aaron Hicks. The Last of Us American Dreams is a four-part miniseries based around Ellie and her friend Riley. It serves as a prequel to the game and was published by Dark Horse Comics. There would be a playable demo of the game available two weeks before its release. It would, however, only be available for PlayStation Plus members and God of War Ascension owners. There was even a countdown to the demo's release on the home screen of God of War Ascension. So essentially, they went over to Santa Monica Studio and hijacked their game. And then finally, we have The Last of Us One Night Live, which this is super interesting. So One Night Live was a live theatrical performance where the actors and actresses from the game would read sections of the script along with uh, videos from the motion capture sessions were played and music from the game was performed live with the soundtrack's composer Gustavo Santiago with Gustavo Santoyo. It was performed at the Broad Stage in Santa Monica, California, July 28, 2014. And it was produced by Naughty Dog and journalist Jeff Keighley. You know, as, as the marketing brought us into the game, the real thing that hooked people when you put it into your system, made the download, or however you saw it, uh, was the campaign. Yes. And I want to do a quick breakdown of, you know, uh, uh, from A to Z on what the campaign entailed and what the story told. Yeah. The year is 2013. Joel comes home to his daughter, Sarah, after a long day at work. She gives him a birthday gift, and they go to bed. Sarah wakes up a few hours later to a phone call from Joel's brother, Tommy, looking for him, and she can't find Joel. There seems to be some kind of chaos going on outside. Eventually, Joel comes home. They need to leave. Their neighbor breaks into the house, and Joel has to kill him. Tommy shows up to the house, and the three drive away. As they drive through the city, they see humans attacking other humans, and the world falling apart. You know, after their car was hit by another vehicle, the three must escape, being chased by these infected humans. Tommy stays behind to fend them off, and he's ordered to execute them. He fires upon the two, and then Joel's brother shoots the soldier in the head. Sarah is hit and unfortunately dies in Joel's arms. And, and this part is is really the first time where you get that... You cried. I mean, I cried, where well, um, Joel, Joel holds his daughter and is just basically begging to to whoever for this to not happen and mm-hmm. it's even interesting because he's not screaming or anything he's just kind of quietly talking and uh i just want to dive into when or initially they did the motion capture uh sessions for this troy baker's idea of what was going to happen was he's screaming and yelling and and all this stuff and cursing and neil Druckmann they had to do that session so many times because troy baker wanted to He's even said kind of prove himself as an actor, but he didn't realize that he could just do this more, you know, somber, quiet, sorrow scene where it's actually, I think, a lot more impactful. And they all agreed when it wasn't as like chaotic and loud, then it's it, you know, it is more impactful. Mm -hmm. 20 years later, Joel has survived in the new world, becoming a smuggler. He lives in an extremely strict quarantine zone controlled under martial law with soldiers guarding every corner. Anyone who is either infected or breaks any of the laws are executed on the spot. 
Joel and his smuggler companion Tess are on their way to recover some stolen weapons from a man named Robert. They found out that he actually sold their guns to the rebel group, the Fireflies, who had mm-hmm. been at war with all the soldiers uh, enforcing the martial law. A member of the group, Marlene, informs them that they can't get their weapons until they smuggle something else, a girl named Ellie, to the Capitol building in Boston. And Joel and Tess learn that Ellie is actually immune to the infection, and she might be the only hope for a cure. Once the three make it to the Capitol, they learn that the Fireflies were actually killed there. They also learn that Tess has, in fact, been infected and will soon turn. Tess stays behind to let Joel and Ellie escape, fighting to the death while they make their way to Joel's brother to find some answers because Joel's brother used to be uh, a part of the Fireflies and kind of left. But they need a vehicle, so they visit Joel's friend, Bill, to obtain one. Throughout the game, Joel and Ellie start becoming close, and Joel once again finds himself in a fatherly role. Eventually, they meet up with Joel's brother, Tommy, and ask him for some help. Tommy eventually offers to take Ellie to the Fireflies, but Ellie refuses. Joel decides to take her to the Fireflies himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that was a powerful scene as well, because he was essentially writing her off, like, listen, we don't need to be together. And, and Ellie confesses to him, like, I've only ever felt safe with you. That's mm-hmm. it. And they both talk about losing people, but it's almost like a falling out they have before Joel at the last minute says... I'm actually going to take her myself. Mm -hmm. While looking for the fireflies, they're attacked, and Joel falls on a piece of rebar. The two escape, but Joel becomes unconscious. The game now jumps to winter. Ellie is out hunting when she runs across two people in the forest, David and James. Ellie offers to trade with them for some antibiotics. Eventually, David reveals that he knows Ellie and Joel had killed some of his men. David wants to bring her into his community. Eventually, she is captured, and we learn that David's community is actually a group of cannibals. Ellie manages to escape, killing David right as Joel finds her. She's obviously now more broken than ever. Yeah, and again, this is another—I'm going to dive into these you know, gut-wrenching scenes, and it, this scene's really important is because at the beginning of the game, he calls his daughter Sarah Joel. Uh, he calls his daughter Sarah— he calls her Sarah Joel? <laughs> he calls her baby girl. And when Ellie had just killed David with a machete, I believe, you see that, she, as we said, she's broken, and he, he comforts her, and he starts calling her baby girl. And this is where you truly see now he sees Ellie as kind of his daughter, essentially. The campaign shifts to spring, and Ellie and Joel are close to finding the fireflies. They stop and have a moment where they see wild giraffes and manage to pet one. It was, again, beautiful scene in the game. Joel offers Ellie one last chance to go back, but she decides that they need to see this through. Eventually, they do find the Fireflies, and Ellie is being prepped to save the world. Joel learns that Ellie can be used to create a cure, but she must die to do so. And Joel won't let this happen, because they have to go and basically harvest her brain to Mm -hmm. create this this, uh, cure. Eventually, Joel kills everyone in the facility and saves Ellie and tells her that the doctors don't want a cure anymore since he said, basically, you're not the only person who's immune. There's a lot of people. They're not interested in you anymore. She accepts this answer only after making Joel swear to her that it's the truth. He lies and says it is, and the game you know, essentially cuts there. You know, instead of being a cinematic, you have to walk into the uh, surgery room where uh, Ellie's on the uh, surgical table and kill the surgeon. Mm-hmm. The thing that's crazy is there's no way to not kill that surgeon. Uh, people have said in the past that they've tried shooting in the air to scare him. 
even doing non-lethal shots like his leg, no matter what you do, you have to kill this surgeon, which kind of, again, we talked about, you bear that weight afterwards yeah. of, of going through and doing that. Of someone who's kind of a somewhat neutral party. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, there is a secret ending to the game that isn't in the game whatsoever. The ending was written by Druckmann as a goodbye to Joel and Ellie, taking place after the events of the game at Tommy's Dam. In the scene, Joel is talking with Ellie, and she seems rather distant. He then pulls out a guitar and plays her a song and tells her a joke. After the two laugh, he leaves Ellie the guitar as a gift, and then the scene ends with Ellie alone strumming the guitar. The only time this has ever been seen was in Los Angeles at the Last of Us One Night Live event, celebrating The Last of Us Remastered. The scene was acted out by Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson. Mm -hmm. Because this was written to be a one-off game, essentially, so this was... The send-off, essentially. Yeah, and, and we do eventually see this send-off into The Last of Us 2, or in portions of it as somewhat of a flashback. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's jump over to some DLC that we got with The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. Uh, our first one's Left Behind, which picks up where the American Dreams left off and takes place three weeks before Ellie meets Joel while she was with her friend Riley. After the base game was finished, Naughty Dog took a couple of weeks off and then got straight to work on the DLC. They wanted to include things that they didn't have the resources for in the base game, like multi-faction combat. Overall, the development for the DLC took roughly five months or so to complete. Some fans were less than thrilled when they learned at the end of the DLC that Ellie is gay. Druckmann had stated that it was never to push some kind of political agenda, it just made sense. Luckily, those fans that disliked Ellie being gay were the minority of the fan base. Mm, yeah. And, you know, they, they did have resources with this DLC to implement some new features, as you said, like multi-faction combat. But there were still some things that never made its way into the game or DLC. Mm-hmm. Now, originally, the fungal infection would have only affected women. But Naughty Dog realized a game that had you mowing down women would have been rather misogynistic. And next for, you know, what made its way to the cutting board is you would have only played as Joel in the beginning when the infection starts. And, you know, we talked about Joel's neighbor breaks in and he has to kill him. Originally, you were playing as Joel who had to go to the neighbor's house and kill him because he was infected. Mm -hmm. But they changed it to where now you're playing as Sarah. And then next is there was only going to be one class of clicker. Ten months before the game shipped, though, Straley decided that they needed to have that four stages of infection and that that life cycle. And this next thing is I'm, I'm glad they cut is that Tess, which is uh, Joel's friend, was going to be the main villain of the game. But I think they decided let's make her like his really only friend that gets killed off early on. But yeah, my guess was what they wanted to do was have her kind of like be the the this is just Alex speculation be trying to be the convincing voice of no they need to harvest ellie mm-hmm. like we need to do this mm-hmm. and joel yeah. joel's getting that attachment i mean i think it would have been interesting as a what if but i think as the story stands it re- did really well mm-hmm. yeah and then finally the few things that were also cut as animals would have been infected by the fungus which is uh would have made the gameplay even more chaotic mm-hmm. uh, you would have had a dog companion and then finally, there would have been plants that would have trapped you, like Venus flytraps. I think that's a little too far-fetched, that's a little a too little fantasy. Sci- yeah, sci-fi fantasy, yeah. where it's like, uh, this kind of feels like more like, like Arkham Asylum when you're punching those Venus flytraps, essentially. No idea what you're talking about, but probably just like that. <laughs> now, let's go into, like, I think, one of my favorite things. Uh, I mean, obviously, the campaign's great, the game is great. A lot of things people didn't play, but I love was the multiplayer. Mm-hmm. For a game so heavily focused on the single-player campaign, 
many didn't expect the game to have a multiplayer mode. Nonetheless, Naughty Dog described their multiplayer for The Last of Us, called Factions, as the quote, best ever conceived. Factions is supposed to extend the theme of the campaign, though you can customize your character. Players will pick the sides of either the Fireflies or the Hunters. The players will then start with a small team and must keep them alive, as well as grow the team over the course of the match. The three multiplayer modes are Supply Raid, Interrogation, and Survivors. Supply Raid is a simple 4 vs 4 mode with 20 respawns total. Survivors is still 4 vs 4, but there is no respawns. Best out of 7 wins in uh, Survivors game mode. In Interrogation, you interrogate the opponent when they're down with a special execution. After interrogating five enemies, you will learn the location of their lockbox. And then once you find that lockbox, you must defend it to keep the other enemies from unlocking it. Now within factions, you can still craft items, use a listen mode to locate enemies, and if one is down, crawl to an ally to be revived. The action in the multiplayer is a reflection of the campaign, with hand-to-hand combat, weapons, and use of Molotov cocktails, nail bombs, etc. Like It's basically exactly the system that they had in combat, just perfectly placed in the multiplayer. Mm-hmm. The multiplayer was never too terribly popular, with only 9,000 concurrent players at peak times. In 2019, Naughty Dog would shut down the servers hosting The Last of Us and Uncharted 2 and 3. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, because, like I said, it did carry over to 2. But the, the the first one was such a fun time, and it was fun like getting a team like a team that you knew or getting a bunch of people you knew to play the game. It's a fantastic time to get together, and it was just not a shoot 'em up. You still had to play in the Last of Us style to to get what you had to do, especially in interrogation mode, to try and keep you away from the enemy, but also approach the enemy. Uh, it was a fun time. Well, I think I think one reason it did suffer is because a lot of times people do want to be lone wolves, and this is a, a game mode where you have to work as a team, and a lot of people didn't really like that. Well, yeah, you'd at least stay together um, mm-hmm. just so you weren't easily picked off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing in the works, uh, not just the game, we had what was a movie transition to a television show that we may or may not see. In an interview with VentureBeat in February 2014, Druckmann and Straley were asked about the idea of video games and television shows becoming more interactive with one another. Druckmann would answer with, quote, There's no movie coming out of Naughty Dog anytime soon. This wasn't exactly true. But when studios first started approaching Naughty Dog about adapting the game onto the big screen, the initial reaction was a firm no. In 2014, it was announced that a Last of Us movie was in the works from Screen Gems. Sam Raimi and his company Ghost House Pictures were brought on to the project as producer, along with Neil Druckmann, who was also going to be the lead writer. Game of Thrones star Maisie Williams was cast as Ellie for the movie. Druckmann would write a couple drafts of the script and work with actors during table reads. In 2015, Williams would state in an interview with Digital Spy that the movie is in its early days of production. By 2016, though, Raimi had stated the movie was at a standstill, and there was nothing he could do about it. And eventually, the movie was shut down altogether. Eventually, the project would be revived, but this time as a television series for HBO. Like the movie, it's set to follow Joel and Ellie in the post-apocalyptic world set in The Last of Us, this time with Chernobyl writer Craig Mazin and director Johan Renk working on the project. Producer Carolyn Strauss and Naughty Dog co-president Evan Wells were also brought in as producers alongside Druckmann and composer Gustavo Santaolalla would return to score the series. As of February 2021, Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey were cast as Joel and Ellie, respectively, 
for the television show. So it's going to be interesting. We'll see what comes of it. I'm, I'm excited about it. I think the choices thus far definitely fit it. I mean, these are two actors who have worked together, mm-hmm. um, or at least in the same universe. And, and as well worked with HBO already. Yes. So they already know kind of how this is going to come together. And I'm assuming that this is just, they're on the pool of list of mm-hmm. people to kind of go down. Mm-hmm. And both of their acting talents are fantastic. So I'm excited to see what comes of this. Absolutely. It, it, it's good to see that it's finally started. The wheels are finally turning. Mm-hmm. So we're still getting news. Like if you just Google this right now, you'll still get an article popping up every few days about what we may or may mm-hmm. not know. Because um, I said, Sony's producing that. Supposedly we're getting a God of War movie or television show here this soon. Is, this is going to be, I think like the 2020s are going to be the era of, Gaming adaptations. Yes. Well, it's uh, Uncharted as of two days ago just got delayed. It's supposed to be kind of like a younger mm-hmm. Nathan Drake. Yeah, especially. Yeah, you've got Uncharted. You've got Last of Us. You've got Halo. I'm trying to think. There's a couple others in the works that are, that yeah. are supposed to be coming out that are TV shows. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, movies, TV shows are supposed to be coming out. So I think this will be the this will be the era where I think the adaptations can finally do some justice with it. Yeah. Video games are becoming more and more mainstream and you're getting writers from the 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 people who made the video mm-hmm. games to actually work on it rather than just uh, a script writer who's who kind of skimmed the game. Well, and we're, we're seeing the marrying between motion and gaming with mm-hmm. mocap, with you know CGI. You know, both of those are sharing a lot of similar things. Instead of having ten pixels dance around, having to adapt that to the screen, <laughs> yeah, figure out like <laughs> what they would look like. Yeah, uh, uh, it, it's it, it. I think it's really cool. I mean, as I said, like as an example. I think the Half-Life movie that was pitched to Gabe Newell, uh, they said that Gordon Freeman was going to be riding horses at one point. Mm-hmm. Like now we're again, I think we're kind of taking some of the Hollywood out of it and kind of giving us proper interpretations or we we may or may not of uh, these video games. Yeah. And we'll see. One thing I will say that they have done right and that we have gotten this actual media is the music. Mm hmm. The Last of Us original soundtrack was written by Gustavo Santaolalla, who was involved with the project from a very early point, using the script in chats with the director to help the creative flow. Mm-hmm. Santaolalla doesn't actually know how to read or write music. Instead, just produces his compositions solely by recording, which is rare that you see, and especially like composers and someone does this for a living. Yeah, and that's kind of that magic touch of just being so involved with it for so long. You just know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like it's just like, okay, this is the key that'll go together. This harmony goes with this. Very similar to like guitarists and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you just hear some go, okay, that's that, that, that. Okay, I can do that. Yeah, even like learning basic things like minor and major key, stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Now, Druckmann would ask for a minimalistic soundtrack, giving Santa Olaya full creative freedom in writing what felt best to him. The tracks are all through composed, meaning that they do not repeat, except for with the combat music. There are several instances where Santa Alaya would experiment with sounds that he thought sounded unusable, but the rest of the team usually ended up loving them the most. And I think it's one of those things where you challenge it. Mm-hmm. You put the challenge out there that this shouldn't fit, but it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Often the writer still finishing the story would listen to these tracks for inspiration to finish their work. Which is awesome. Like, Mm -hmm. you're kind of getting, like, you know the emotional direction to go. Yeah, perfect. Game director Bruce Straley would describe the music as, quote, organic instrumentation, minimalist, dissonance, and resonance with the sounds. You'd love to see it. Santa Olaya had to go to a dark place in order to create the both gritty and moving pieces of music. 
often being reminded of his time in Argentina before coming to the United States. He started by trying to play instruments he did not know how to play, adding a sense of innocence and simplicity to the sounds created. I love that idea of it, of kind of, you know, you may be versed in how to, let's say, play piano. Mm -hmm. And you jump over, you kind of understand keys of a bass guitar or like understand what a key would be. Mm -hmm. You're like, how do I play this? How do I transfer this? And yeah, I love that idea of innocence and Mm -hmm. slow melodic playing. You know, Absolutely. Just Wonderwall. (laughs) That's actually, if you listen to this game soundtrack intensely, it's literally just Wonderwall. (laughs) Other times he thought outside of the box, such as using PVC pipes as low drones, a prepared piano, prepared guitars, and detuned guitars. Santo Elia's favorite consisted of detuning a guitar so that strings were all very low, allowing the strings to be loose and create different unique sounds on top of the pitches. The studio where the music was created had the capability to record music everywhere, including the bathroom. Mm. Some of th- <laughs> I listen. That's where I go to do my musical. Yeah, tones. Imagine you're just seeing, you're doing your business and you just hear a bunch of people come in and just start playing a bunch of music and you're like. I just have to stand still and uh, not make any noise. Why are there so many cans of beans around here? (laughs) (laughs) DM me if you know that joke. (laughs) Some of the most popular tracks on the soundtrack were actually recorded in the kitchen. And the orchestral parts of the soundtrack were recorded outside of there at the Nashville Scoring Orchestra at Ocean Way Studios in Nashville, Tennessee, while the percussion was performed by Santa Olaya at East West Studios in Hollywood. The Last of Us original soundtrack was released digitally and in stores on June 13th, 2013 through Sony Masterworks and contains 30 tracks totaling 56 minutes and 21 seconds. There was a track that was included as a pre-order downloadable content in the Sights and Sounds pack. Later, the soundtrack was re-released on vinyl as well. Well, yeah, um... Just just put me down for not owning that as well. Just, <laughs> we'll get one eventually. Before the release, music from the game was performed by Santa Olaya in anticipation for the release during the 2012 Spike Video Game Awards. The soundtrack won excellent in the musical score category at the 2014 South by Southwest Gaming Awards and received nominations at the 10th British Academy Video Game Awards as well as the Spike VGX 2013 Awards, the Hardcore Gamer Awards, and by IGN and Game Trailers. I mean, it is an awesome soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's impactful. You did it. You did it. Sent. You, <laughs> you well, did. you know what? I don't own it, so you kind of did it. <laughs> Actually, yeah. Um, you haven't made it yet. Uh, once Alex, Hey, you'll get there. Once Alex gets his hands on the vinyl, then you've made it. Until you, then. Hey, you get there. <laughs> hey, 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 kid. Look, he's looking at you. You get there. <laughs> uh, well, let's talk about some release versions uh, that I do kind of own. Uh, we have, the obviously, the OG PS3 release. We have the PS4 or PlayStation 4, if you don't know what that is. Best of luck. Uh, <laughs> the PlayStation 4 remaster. This version of the game actually began development almost right after the PS3 version was complete. They did this because they knew it would be the number one asked question regarding the PlayStation 3 version, which was whether fans could play it on their PS4 or not. Originally, Naughty Dog told fans outright that there was no plans to bring the game to the PS4. It would come with the DLC left behind and any additional DLC content released for the PS3 version. Players can also watch all of the cutscenes with developer commentary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I, I'm glad that they saved face for a while. They're mm-hmm. like, there's no plans, because then 
a game this impactful, everyone would have been mad if they had to cancel a PS4 port. Well, I mean, especially because like with this, this was somewhat on the late life cycle mm-hmm. of that PS3. Yeah. And and people were wanting that to transfer over to be able to play it on their new system, see it in like this promised 4K of like the release of the, the, the yes. Xbox One and the PS4, and, and to, to really experience it again. And I appreciate that Naughty Dog saw what the fans wanted, took that time, you know, even if they were doing it already, they saw what they wanted, added so much more, the commentary, mm-hmm. the updates to it, all the DLC was included in that new bundle pack, and I think they did it right. As opposed to Skyrim, <laughs> that just releases the same game with nothing else. Hey, hey, hey. I, I have no justification for that. Listen, I've bought Skyrim three times. I understand. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we have the Game of the Year edition, uh, which was pretty much the same idea that it had with all the bundled DLC mm. having a fancy sticker on it. Yep. But finally, we have the general reception of this game. How did people uh, take to this game? How popular was it? What kind of influence did it have on the video game medium? Mm -hmm. The Last of Us was first announced in December 2011 and immediately became one of the most anticipated games at the time. Now, moving on, you know, later when it it, uh, launched, Naughty Dog had a launch party for the game where everyone who worked on the game would attend. Afterwards, actors Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson were leaving, but as they were doing so, Druckmann gave them both copies of the game. The two immediately went back to Baker's apartment with some friends and played the game. Everyone who saw the game were in amazement. Because, again, this was... We're now pushing super cinematic games, so you can Mm -hmm. even have people who don't play games too much who are just like, what's going on here? Like, what is this? Why am I crying right now? (laughs) Oh, that was just Jesse at the party. (laughs) That was Jesse in the corner. Why am I I crying in the club right now? (laughs) Why are you here? I'm just here for the game. (laughs) Please leave. I'm 12-year-old Jesse or whatever age Jesse was. How old was I? Like 19 or something. Close enough, crying in the corner. (laughs) The game sold 3.4 million copies within the first three weeks of its release, continuing to be the best-selling video game for an additional three weeks, and then surpassing the 6 million sold mark a year after it released. By 2018, sales from the PS3 and PS4 versions sold over 17 million copies. It's gone on to earn a 95 out of 100 on Metacritic, and GamesRadar named The Last of Us the greatest PlayStation game of all time. And it's also won dozens of Game of the Year awards, as we had said, you know, there's a Game of the Year edition. Like, this game kind of just took over everything Mm -hmm. essentially the game was applauded for featuring a female protagonist that wasn't overly sexualized or cliche granted some reviewers still see joel as the main character and all other female characters were simply written in to further push his story but Eurogamer's ellie gibson would argue this point stating that the game isn't about men it's about humans needing one another she would also state that the game isn't a solution to sexism you know, it's self in gaming, but it's a start to get that conversation going. Mm-hmm. Actor Elliot Page was less than thrilled about their likeness to Ellie in the game. When asked during a Reddit AMA about it, they responded, quote, I guess I should be flattered that they ripped off my likeness, but I am actually acting in a video game called Beyond Two Souls, so it was not appreciated. From time to time, Page would still get some questions or remarks on Twitter regarding Ellie, since some fans still think that they actually played the part of Ellie. Before the game was released, when Naughty Dog saw that many fans pointed to Paige as the inspiration for Ellie's look, they changed her so that she would better resemble her voice actress, Ashley Johnson, and make Ellie appear slightly younger. I'm not going to say that it, the, it was a very similar look. Like, it almost looked like uh, uh, Elliot's face was just kind of photoshopped on there, mm-hmm. but that's kind of exactly what it looked like. And yeah, all of a sudden, 
now Ellie looks younger and has more so uh, Ashley Johnson's eyes, mm-hmm. like uh, which good call, guys, because uh, people weren't too thrilled about that. No, and, and it's good because obviously as we continue on the sequel and mm-hmm. and we get our voice actors back. It makes more sense because that they continue to build and kind of grow with who they look like. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Um, so I really do appreciate that, and, and it made sense. Yeah. Naughty Dog would also catch some flack about some phone numbers present in the game. Typically, most phone numbers you'll see in a movie or a television show, they have the prefix 555. So that number is instantly invalid. It's not a real number. Mm-hmm. The numbers featured in the game, however, are 1-800 numbers, which the 555 rule does not apply to. Two numbers in the game on a pest control flyer actually were dial-up sex hotlines. Uh, I think some parents were mad because their kids... Called it. Yeah, which... You're letting your kids play an M-rated game in the first place. Yep. Uh, I'm not going to tell you to parent, but uh, also like as a kid, it's just funny. Like the parents are like having a, having a, a like so mad about it. I think they're more mad that it probably cost them money. <laughs> I mean, we all called sex hotlines when we were kids. Like being dumb, who cares? Um, I came out fine. I think all of us did. Let's just say fifty percent of this table did. Perhaps. 50% of this table may or may not have called stuff that Jesse called. <laughs> we were dumb kids. Oh, well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that the royal we on that side of the table and uh, me, not so much. <laughs> Naughty Dog's take on the zombie apocalypse was more reminiscent of The Walking Dead rather than Dawn of the Dead. Though there are infected humans out there, the studio was more focused on the overall desperation of humans themselves during dark, relentless times. The story of Joel and Ellie is one that will go down as one of the greatest campaigns in video game history. The Last of Us took Eco's influence of connection and catapulted it to the next level. Naughty Dog had nothing to prove after Uncharted, but they held nothing back when it came to the emotional roller coaster of this game. The ever-growing relationship between Ellie and Joel throughout the game has become one that many of us adore, and will always remember as a testament to the true power of storytelling within interactive media. Naughty Dog's work will forever be a staple in video games. Mm -hmm. So this is where we wrap up. We sit back, we relax, and we talk about why we chose this game for the podcast. Why... Is this something that we should have covered, essentially? So, Alex, as always, please, start us off. Cool zombies. Jesse, your turn. Cooler zombies. <laughs> no, I, I, we chose this. I mean, a lot of these games that we're choosing may seem obvious to the audience. Um, you know, they're, they're big blockbusters. They're amazing games. And, and we started off that way. We obviously mm-hmm. we obviously decide on, on what the fan base kind of looks like, what's the popularity, but also based on, you know, our own playthroughs as well as just the impact it has within gaming itself. I mean, we'll just touch on a few things. One, obviously the most glaring one we've talked about is having Ellie in there as a strong female protagonist. Mm -hmm. You know, say what you will. Gaming is a very misogynistic, male-dominated industry still to this day. Yes. And having that and having representation for someone is amazing. Absolutely. You know, if you're able to see yourself in, in Ellie's shoes and be able to play this game and feel like that's you... Because I've always felt like the I've always felt like a sweet buff dude my entire life. <laughs> I've always played that person, you know. So to have that, you know, whether you are you know a woman playing this game or or you know whatever you kind of identify with, like having that ability to have see yourself in it, mm-hmm. see yourself in things like that is is amazing. And for them to take you know these steps towards it, like 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 we heard, it, it's not a cure, it's not a cure all. 
It didn't fix it. It didn't really change much, mm-hmm. but it did get the conversation started and get some footsteps made into the industry. Yeah, because they could say, well, why can't we do a game like that as well, where it's not an oversexualized character? It's just a woman getting by and, yeah, and it's, beating it's just, ass. It's just humans. It's mm-hmm. just humans that go. There's no there's no portion of it that's trying to like put here or there. Yeah, um, you know. So so that's obviously it. I mean, the second. And to the forefront with this as well is just the amazing story along with the amazing acting with Ashley and Troy. Mm-hmm. It, it, they did fantastic with it. And all the other ones in the game, too. Like, all the other, like, even NPCs did an amazing job uh, as well. Dude, everyone. Uh, Bill in the game. Mm-hmm. Dude, his character. Like, everything he says is delivered so perfectly. Yeah, and 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 coming off of Uncharted, which in and of itself is kind of that Indiana Jones, Tomb Raider-esque world mm-hmm. that already has a picturesque kind of motif for it yeah they had to make something in this so i think making that post-apocalyptic but overgrown world you know petting the giraffe seeing the animals run by mm-hmm. having this wildlife the the fauna and the flora all, all around it made for such an interesting game that not only had really good game mechanics in my opinion you may disagree but i think the game mechanics fit for what it was it became a game that i really enjoyed coming back to mm-hmm. absolutely and, and not only that the multiplayer, I know it wasn't popular. I know not a lot of people played it because it's not a multiplayer game. First and foremost, it's not. I, I'm going to be totally transparent. I didn't know it had multiplayer till we started working on this episode. And a lot of people didn't. A lot of people played the campaign and played through it maybe on their, their, their PS3 and their PS4. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. Yeah. I only knew of the multiplayer really because I was just watching some videos in The Last of Us years and years ago when it released. And I saw some people playing it. So I jumped on it. And if you can get a good group, it was Fun. It seems like, yeah, it seems like it's definitely different than what's popular. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. tactical. You have to work together as a team. It's, it's much more of that Rainbow Six-esque, mm-hmm. like either the one life or having a couple lives that you can respawn with, but you have to conserve. You can't just be a bullet sponge. You can't just run no, out, take no. a couple Call of Duty bullets and be good. Yeah. You have to watch what you're doing. You can set traps. Everything you can do in the campaign, you can for the most part do in that multiplayer. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate that that was just a neat addition that, you know, it's cool when a multiplayer is added and it's fun with the campaign as a focus, whereas, like, with Titanfall, for example, no campaign and just multiplayer, it leaves people hungry for more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah, so it's it's just a, a fantastic way to to marry those two modes together. And I think overall makes this game deserving of those Game of the Year awards, mm-hmm. makes it deserving of people knowing it as a household name and knowing Joel and Elia's names. Like, if you just hear Joel and Elia as a combo, you're like, oh, Last of Us. Yeah, exactly. Like, th- well, I mean, if if you're not asking your grandma, your grandma might think of like you know her friends at the bingo hall. <laughs> <laughs> but but if you're talking about you know people who play games or someone in the industry or like cinematics, they they might know exactly who you're talking about. Yeah, and, and speaking of just like the cinematics and whatnot, you know, we're the the turn of you know we're we're getting into the 2010s is where we're starting to see this push of more cinematic games. We're starting mm-hmm. to get motion capture become more of a staple. And really, this game was one of the pioneers of that through and through. And, you know, you may argue with me. That's just my opinion. It pushed for that. And and this also, you know, Sony's didn't, again, like like Naughty Dog, Sony didn't need to prove anything. But this is also the era where Sony is just starting to put out exclusives that are resonating with people. The past decade, the games that they have put out, mm-hmm. like, have been nothing short of incredible. And even initially, this game was supposed to be a one-off, and the fans finally demanded that sequel. But this story, as I said, you you know me, 
I play for the story through and through. I do love cinematic experiences where I can't put my controller down sometime, but I think it's it's so cool. And additionally, and this is weird, this is a little side tangent, they barely ever brought up The Walking Dead. They they Only one time in a bunch of interviews did they actually admit The Walking Dead was an influence when it's the most obvious mm-hmm. influence, and as well as they never called them zombies. And I tried to look it up. There's no any kind of copyright on using zombie in video games as of right now. And even 2013, I couldn't find anything because anytime someone in an interview would say, uh, would bring up zombies, they'd go clickers. And then they kind of laugh and they're like, but really clickers. Like they never, or infected, that's what they called them. They never wanted to use the term zombie. They never wanted to really refer to the walking dead. But I think I, I, that's why I tell people, I said, if you want a really good walking dead video game, play this. It, it yes. kind of touches on the same notes and and really kind of that desperation of humans. And if you want a really bad Walking Dead game, play that Daryl's crossbow training or whatever the hell it was. <laughs> uh, that that might be a contender as better than The Last of Us. Oh, wow. Yeah, go play Daryl's garbage game. <laughs> I forgot that existed. But no, really, as I said, for me, uh, uh, Troy Baker and Ashley Johnson mm-hmm. – God, they just hit the ground running with the acting, as I said, and, and all the rest of the minor characters. The gameplay at times for me, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not good at video games. We know this. When you have a clicker running at you and you have to shoot them in the head three times, and you have to do that part over and over again because they're dodging back and forth. Like Jesse just drew a sketch behind him with bullets surrounding the clicker. <laughs> <laughs> it's their silhouette, yeah. and, and that does get frustrating at times. That was that, you know like, uh, and same with my girlfriend. She's she's currently playing through the game. She has to. You know, she'll play for a couple hours a week and then stop for a week because it that game gets stressful. The gameplay, especially when you get three or four uh, clickers or infected in there, it's like a, a game where you can't just go out and just shoot them a bunch. You have to kind of figure out a strategy. Well, and that's yeah, that's where Ellie works in, and even like the environment, like throwing bricks and rocks to mm-hmm. try and to try and distract them off. Yes, so yes. you can get around them. Uh, it, it really changes that gameplay up, and like you said. If people were going in, you know, so many games, people want to be that gun toter, just run in, pop, 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 pow, keep going. And mm-hmm. a lot of games like The Last of Us that came out years previously that were kind of the 3D, sorry, the third person, not 3D, the third person uh, over the shoulder thing, it was that. You just fired, 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 continued on, fired, fired, fired. Yeah. And now we're starting to get those narrative games where you're not a god. Mm-hmm. You're not somebody who can just sprint through this. You have a humanity and a life to you that you have to kind of worry about. Well, especially the only way you can heal yourself is making a med kit mm-hmm. and then applying the med kit, which I love. No matter where you're injured, it's just Band-Aids on his forearm of every course. time. <laughs> he just gets bitten there a lot, apparently. But yeah, needless to say, this game is a powerhouse. It's it's so cool. I, I haven't, spoilers, I have not played the second one yet. I'm going to here soon, but because we own it and... uh I'm looking forward to it. I said the first one set a standard. Mm-hmm. It set the bar so high, and and games now are, I think, truly catching up with it. Mm-hmm. Like, it was, it was a great game, and I think overall I'm, I'm glad that we covered this and we dove into this. I, I went back down memory lane. As I said, my girlfriend's replaying it at the time, so it's really cool to re-experience this oh, as totally. well. Uh, so I'd say this is where we uh, rate the game. What would you give it? I'm going to say 9.5. 9.5. 9.5 again. I'm not good at actually playing the game. I suffer through the game for those cutscenes. Hey, understandable. If I had to give it a rating, if I had to give it a rating, if I had to give it a rating, I would give it like uh, two of those nail bombs that are kind of cool. Add in 
like this the sweet like stabby motion that Ellie does. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, divide that by how many cars Joel wrecks. Um, <laughs> it's a few. Divide that by never having a song in the game by Fireflies. <laughs> um, that that was a that was a missed opportunity. Absolutely. Oh, sorry, not by Fireflies. Oh, oh Owl City's Fireflies song. Excuse me. Owl City's Fireflies, we don't hear in the game. I thought you were just referring to a band. I didn't know. No, 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 no. Owl City, uh, obviously. Uh, Fireflies, great song. Maybe. Can you imagine that song in the game, though? Weird, weird change of pace. Because, yeah, because, all right, so here's the scene. This is also part of my rating. You have, like, a council chamber, kind of like Star Wars, and then Joel and Ellie are in the bottom pit, wherever that is. Is it the bottom? I don't know. The bottom, yeah. Sure, the bottom of Star Wars. And then the lights are off, but then they turn on, and you're seeing uh, 10 million of these fireflies <laughs> as the song starts to play. Incredible. And then that equals my version of The Last of Us. Yeah, there you go. That was it. That was our coverage of the legendary The Last of Us. Mm-hmm. Research was done by Jesse Reiners and Evan Barr. Art by Jesse Reiners and Jessica Wellickson. And music written and composed by Evan Barr. And as always, people who are much more important than them, because honestly, what do they do? The people who really did this are our patrons. Of course. Uh, So I want to thank those people today. So if you're not a part of our Patreon, we have the link everywhere or ask for it. Got some cool stuff. We got some fun merch, stickers, bonus episodes, an entire bonus show that Jesse and I create Mm -hmm. um, where we talk about games we find in the dumpster, basically. (laughs) Um, Fun stuff with that. And that one's a fun one to edit. Uh, and plenty more. You can check it out at patreon.com slash finish the fight. Uh, but I want to thank those people today. And we have Charles Zitter, Tactics, Sky the Bear, Angry Canadian, Grant Dillon, Mr. Choff, Count Fong Feliciano, DGamer1298, Alex Harper, Dilfix, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Brandon Christian, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Smechki, Grant ODST, Loki2014, Nathan Van der Voort, Climbing Spork, Mr1898 himself, and William Kroll. So thank you guys for supporting us. And if you have any questions about our Patreon, be sure to find us on social, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, uh, and shoot us a message about that. And we're, we're happy to answer any of your questions. And if you just want to check out the Patreon yourself, the link is in the description of this episode on the, the left, the bottom, the right, the top, wherever it is on your podcast player. And additionally, be sure to join our Discord. If you just want to talk shop, if you want to show us your beers, if you want to show us your pets, talk about gaming or see the latest gaming deals, we have all that for you in our Discord. And catch me this Monday, or if you missed it, catch me again. Uh, Usually uh, on Mondays, we'll be doing our podcast stream over at twitch.tv slash sourman70. That's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. Uh, We'll be playing through the podcast of the week game. So, you know, if you listen to this on Thursday, Friday, when this releases, this upcoming Monday, I'll be playing through The Last of Us. Mm -hmm. He's going to cry a lot. He's going to hold it back. I'm just going to have Jess in the background in the corner when he was over over at Troy Baker's apartment, crying (laughs) in my apartment or my house now in the corner. Uh, So, yeah, we'll be playing it there. We play a a variety of other games as well as where we stream our game nights and plenty of other stuff that we have going on in the community. Mm -hmm. Yep. And with that being said, that was The Last of Us. Tune in next week for another awesome breakdown of your favorite video game. I am your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast.